And we welcome you to the Monday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg, and we're certainly beginning today in very exciting fashion uh, because I can speak with someone who is going to be a very special guest of Carthage College a little later this week, Rosario Marin, uh, a former treasurer of the United States. You might be carrying around a dollar bill in your wallet that bears Rosario Marin's uh, signature. Uh, she was the 41st uh, treasurer of the United States. That was during the term of uh, President George W. Bush. And uh, her story, her personal story, is certainly an inspiring one. An entrepreneur and uh, author, also wife and mother, and uh, someone who uh, is coming to Carthage to, among other things, uh, speak on the topic of uh, America's economic relationship with Latin America, and very specifically with Mexico, which is the beautiful nation where Rosario Marin was born. And uh, that uh, public presentation will be uh, Wednesday at 6 p.m., and a little later in the hour we'll give you information uh, on, uh, on what you should do if you would be interested in attending that presentation. Rosario Marin will actually be on the campus of Carthage uh, over the course of a couple of days. And I'm so glad that she uh, can be my guest on today's morning show. Rosario Marin, we welcome you to the morning show. Well, I am so excited, Greg. Thank you so very much for that wonderful introduction. I am excited. I am grateful. I am looking forward to meeting the people in in college, not just the students, because I understand uh, that some of the teachers, uh, advisors uh, in the community as a whole in the area will be invited. I am so looking forward to my days with all of you. Very good. Uh, I have read a little bit, but uh, uh, I'm anxious to learn more about your own uh, family background uh, in Mexico. It sounds like uh, you come from uh, a family of, of, of humble means, and it also sounds like, uh, at least initially, uh, when you learned that your parents were interested in emigrating to the United States, uh, you were not very excited about that. Uh, I'm anxious to hear about that. But first, tell us a little more about your your mother and father and your family life in Mexico uh, before your family uh, uprooted itself and made its way to uh, to the United States. Yes, thank you, Greg. Well, so my our my story is a story of millions of immigrants who come to the United States, um, and certainly I've been here for a few decades now, um, for the reasons, for the same reasons, economic reasons. Um, It was my mom, my dad, and there were five of us. We live in a two-room house, and one was the bedroom, and it looked like a hospital, (laughs) because it was all this bed, and the other room was served as the uh, living room, dining room, kitchen, you know, the whole thing. Um, very humble beginnings, very, very humble beginnings. Uh, my dad knew that unless he did something different, um, that he wasn't going to be able to continue to provide for his family. His children were growing. So he had the incredible fortune to come to the United States um, legally, he there was uh, there were programs at that time where companies from the United States would go down to Mexico 
provide security, the security of a job. And they themselves will fill out the paperwork so that a green card was given to my father. That same company, a couple of years later, went back and they filled out all of the paperwork for us to be able to come here legally. And it was, um, uh, it was uh, a privilege. Um, we were very lucky, except that at that time, I was 14 years and a half. And I begged and implored my mom uh, not to bring me to the United States because, as you may know, uh, the quinceañera, which is the 15-year-old uh, uh, party, uh, this is something so special for girls in Mexico. And I remember even as a 7-year-old thinking and dreaming of that party. And, uh, well, you know, my parents said, no, we're going because we have to go. And at that time, I didn't understand that we were very, very poor. Uh, I grew up in a very poor neighborhood with very few means. And, but I, you know, we never lacked love and affection. Um, so uh, for me, this is the way it was. And, you know, you look around and everybody's living exactly the same way you are. So therefore, it's, it was okay. I didn't realize, obviously my parents did realize that, um, that that was not the life that, that we could continue to go on because there were so many things lacking. Had I not come to the United States, Greg, my education would have finished at the ninth grade. Mm. Uh, so to come to the United States, uh, worse, we, we came on... We left Mexico on December 20th, 1972, and we arrived at the border in Tijuana on December 22nd, you know, right before Christmas. It mm. was the worst Christmas, the worst Christmas that, that I, I would have had. And I cried the entire time. My eyes were completely swollen. I did not want to come to the United States, especially during that time. And, you know, much less, you know, in a few months I was going to be, it was going to be my quinceañera. So my mom, you know, as mothers are, she saw me, so distraught. And she says, Mija, I have, Mija is my daughter. Mija, I don't know how we're going to do it, but I promise you, I promise you, we will go back to Mexico and you will have your quinceañera. You'll have your, your party. And I was like, okay, well, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll have it. And we did. You know, today I know the sacrifices that they had to make for me to be able to have my, my little party, right? Uh. It wasn't nothing like I had envisioned. You know, I had envisioned this, you know, almost Cinderella kind of uh, party. <laughs> but it was my party. Mm. It was my party. And the most important thing, Greg, and I, I, I usually share this because it made me realize how important a mother's love and a mother's commitment is to her children. And I know it was significant sacrifices so that we would go back six months later so that the girl, that little girl would have her dream party. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, I'm so grateful. That's such a beautiful story, and I think you're absolutely right. It's a really uh, 
splendid example of of a mother's love or a parent's love that can make such a difference uh, in the life of a youngster experiencing a, a wrenching and bewildering change as 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 you were at that point in time i know that once you got to uh, the united states and entered school mm-hmm. i know that you faced something else that was really quite difficult when uh, you were in a sense uh, misassessed or misdiagnosed as maybe having uh, learning disabilities or mental deficiency, uh, I, w- I suspect maybe because of your your, your difficulty with the English language, uh, but but there was a time where uh, it looked like uh, you were destined for uh, a life in uh, special education classes, uh, and uh, and one would never have imagined what was ahead for you. Describe what happened and how difficult that was, and how you were able to kind of emerge from that uh, that uh, that difficulty. Yeah, well, so just a little bit of background. When when I was in Mexico, even at the ninth grade, when we finished ninth grade, um, I had uh, I had gone to uh, a school that um, even provided. Um, Almost like, uh, well, actually I did. I, I ended up knowing shorthand and I, typing. I, I, could be, I could serve as a secretary at that time. I had chemistry. I had psychology classes. I had algebra, trigonometry. I had taken all these classes in school at the tender age of 14. I had already, you know, I was typing. At that time, it was like 60 words a minute. And shorthand, it was like 100 words a minute. It was just incredible. Um, But when it came to the United States, uh, when you go into high school, uh, at that time, it was required to have an IQ test. And as you know, the average IQ is 100 points. And mine came back with 27 points. Mm. And people laughed at me. That My teacher, as he handed me the paper, he laughed at me. And, you know, I look at that paper and the fact that people around me were laughing. And it was so interesting, Greg, because I knew I was better than 27 points. And so in my mind, I said, this thing, the only thing that it shows is that I don't speak English because the entire language, the entire test was, was in English. Today, you, they, you, they don't take this test anymore, right? They, they don't. And, um, but at that time, that's just the way it was. Rather than making me feel sorry or, you know, people were bullying me or anything like that, I decided to take the bull by the horn. I said, you know what? I'm going to learn English. I'm going to learn it well. I'm going to learn it fast. And then they can test me again. And you know, Greg, uh, three years later, I graduated in the top 20 students of the high school. 460-something students graduated at that time. I learned English. I decided to, to only read English, only listen to English, only watch TV in English, uh, and it was more to show myself, not to show anybody, but to prove to myself that I was better, that that, that 27 points was not going to define me. Hmm. And, and so I took it more as a challenge to myself and prove to myself that I was better than that, whatever that paper said. 
And lo and behold, I did. I graduated with honors. I have this big gold circle in my in my diploma. I was I I but it was it was it was a decision, a very willing willful decision to prove to myself that that was not going to define me. Mm. And uh, I understand that listening intensely to the radio was one of the things that helped you learn English. So as someone on the radio, I applaud that choice among many that you made to uh, to prove them wrong so emphatically. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Rosario Marin, a former treasurer of the United States. And uh, she is going to be a guest this week uh, of, of the Carthage College Business and Professional Coalition and speaking to the public this Wednesday, February 23rd, at 6 p.m., speaking on the topic of uh, the United States and its economic relationship with Latin America and and very specifically with Mexico, uh, the land where uh, Rosario Marin was born. Uh, So you have had a a very interesting career that uh, began uh, in sort of uh, entrepreneurial lanes but ultimately led you into profound public service and... uh, I wonder what, if anything, drew you into uh, a desire to uh, uh, to either work for the government or serve the public in in this respect. Yes, well, so um, life takes you in different paths, and I uh, I went to work immediately after high school. I went to school. At night, it took me seven years to get my bachelor's degree. I went into banking, and I started at City National Bank as the assistant to the receptionist. Um, I had had different jobs, but I ended up in banking. And where I started um, at at this particular bank, City National Bank, uh, I started as the assistant to the receptionist. They knew that that I was uh, going to school, that I wanted to better myself. It was a great bank. now owned by the, <clears throat> excuse me, the Royal Bank of Canada, but uh, Sydney National Bank was a uh, commercial bank, still is, it, uh, and and I just uh, did as as good of a job as I could. Um, they started promoting me, and in six years I was going to be named assistant vice president for the bank. Uh, Greg, I was having such a great time. I had I started my master's degree. I had already been married with my husband. We, we both immigrants. He's from Nicaragua. My life was almost perfect, but it wasn't complete. And we were both studying for our MBA. Um, we had a brand new car. We had purchased our home. I was being promoted. I was making more money than my husband. I was the happiest woman on earth. And yet it wasn't complete. So we endeavored to create and form our family. And we did. And Eric was born. But Eric was born with Down syndrome and many other medical problems. So uh, life changed dramatically for me. I, um, uh, I, uh, a few months after Eric was born, I got pregnant again. And even though Eric's life 
you know, was was very difficult and and very painful for us. I felt that this new baby was going to make up. Uh, somehow, uh, this baby was going to erase all the pain and the sorrow. And um, four months later, I lost that pregnancy. Mm. And my life shattered. Uh, no more MBA. I decided that I was going to give up my career at City National Bank. Uh, since since that happened, I, I was making more money than my husband. Uh, we had to sell the house. I became um, a walking zombie. I really didn't care about anything. I was my whole life had changed so dramatically. I took care of my son. I would feed him. I would bathe him. I would take care of him. But I forgot about myself. Sometimes I would eat. Sometimes I wouldn't eat. Sometimes I would take a shower. Sometimes I wouldn't take a shower. Sometimes the way that I woke up, that's exactly the way I went to sleep. I was so depressed. There were nights, Greg, that I would go to sleep hoping that I wouldn't wake up. And then you wake up and you say, no, not again, please no more. Hmm. I, I was just hoping that my life would change. This wasn't worth living. Everything that I had worked so hard for was gone. But I had to take care of my son. And so my husband was so worried about me. His life didn't change. He continued his MBA. He continued to work for the city of Los Angeles. Um, but I was stuck every day with my son and all his medical problems. So today I know, what if somebody, you know, during these horrible long nights and very, very dark times, somebody would come to me and say, you know, Rosario, uh, you know, you just don't know, but in a few years, you're going to be changing lo uh, laws for people with disabilities. I would have said, are you kidding me? <laughs> Nothing. Laws. Are you kidding me? What are you talking about? Uh, or, you know, you're going to run for city council and you're going to be elected to the city of Huntington Park. <laughs> I know nothing about politics. That's not going to happen. How could that happen? Or your name is going to be in, in the money of the United States. Uh, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> or you'll run for, for um, the U.S. Senate and you'll be the first Latina to ever run for that position. Are you kidding? You know, or you'll work for the governor, Governor Schwarzenegger, and you're going to be in his cabinet and you're going to run one of the largest agencies in the, in the state. Um, certainly, Greg, I would have never believed that. <laughs> Incredible. That's life, Greg. It's, it's, uh, it, it's amazing. Right. It, we don't How, write the script. <laughs> yes. Yes. So I... So, I so, so I know that it is, as an advocate for uh, 
on behalf of your son and others with Down syndrome and others with other disabilities that you were able to find your way, in a sense, into new and very, very exciting arenas. And I should think that probably all that you experienced up till then has been important in terms of, of you achieving the success uh, that, that you have um, as an elected official and as a, a public servant and ultimately as treasurer of the United States. I mean, all that you experienced, including the difficulties, I'm sure you see now as part of what allowed you to succeed in uh, such exciting ways. Absolutely. Greg, you know, if, if, uh, if my son had not been born with Down syndrome, I probably would have stayed in banking, and actually that's what I had dreamed of. I, I was going to be assistant vice president, then vice president, then senior vice president, then executive vice president, then president, then I was going to own my own bank. That was my life. That's what I, I thought. And as a matter of fact, you know, in college, you are oftentimes um, uh, given the task to uh, imagine what you want to be in five years or uh, think about your life plan and what would you like to do in 10 years and how do you visualize yourself in so many years. And I did. I did that. I took that to heart and I wrote a beautiful life plan for me. I knew exactly what I was going to do when. (laughs) And then life happened. (laughs) (laughs) Never did I think that I would be in government. Never did I think I was going to be changing laws. Never did I think I would be running for office. But that's what happened. And, and, and what is interesting is at that point, there is this moment when it becomes clear that what you were thinking you were going to do is not going to happen. So what are you doing? How, discovering my life mission was a, a, a beautiful extra exercise. First of all, without thinking, um, I, I couldn't think to stop myself and my son. I realized that just like I was it had thrown into this sea that I knew nothing. I had no idea how to swim in this sea with uh, this tempest around me, um, that there were other families like me. And then I realized that I knew English. I had gone to college. Uh, there were other women that were probably exactly in my same shoes, but without the tools that I was given, that I had been given. They had no education. They probably didn't even speak English. They probably, some of them didn't even speak Spanish. And yet they had to advocate for their children. They had to take their children to all of these places. So I created a support group for Latino families um, of children with Down syndrome first, and then we expanded it to cover all disabilities. That led me to be an advocate, and I would go to Sacramento, and I would testify before the Assembly and the Senate in Sacramento, and we would hold rallies, and I became a fierce advocate for people with disabilities. Uh, Never in my banking days would I have ever imagined that I would be doing this. But there I was, you know, telling the world how, what the needs of the families with children with disabilities were. And they listened. They actually listened. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is powerful. So when Governor Wilson was elected in California back in 1990, um, uh, I, I was approached 
by the then director of the Department of Developmental Services, Danny Amundsen, and says, Rosario, you, you need to be part of the administration. And I looked at him and I said, Danny, are you kidding me? I know nothing about lobbying. And, you know, he says, well, you're not going to be lobbying. You're going to be educating uh, people about the needs of people. It's what you're doing, but now you're going to be doing it for the government, you know, within the government. And you have the ability to tell the governor what, what he should do. And I was like, wow, okay, well, then here I go. You know, it was, <laughs> if that's what I was going to be able to do. And, you know, Craig, I was so fortunate. Governor Wilson, when I was in that position, he signed the most sweeping reform for uh, people with disabilities. It was amazing to be part of that. It was amazing that he would listen to what we had to say and reform the entire system for, for, for people with developmental disabilities. And the next year, when I was still there, he was able to create the new law, uh, what it was called at that time, the Early Intervention Services Act. And it was a new way of providing services to families of babies, of, of children, you know, young children. So I just feel so privileged that it was during my tenure that he was able to do this and so grateful. And, you know, I saw him last year at an event and I hugged him and thanked him again for all he did for people with disabilities. I served with him for seven years. Mm. I, I was with him until he, he finished in 1998. And so uh, I was very lucky. I, I was in his staff um, in four different positions. And I learned a little bit about government. He was an amazing governor. Hmm. So learned a little bit, and that helped me to then uh, get elected in a city that I'm a Republican, um, and uh, my city is 70% Democrat. So they elected me, and they reelected me. Um, and that was also just an enormous privilege and was able to serve my city my beloved city of Huntington Park, uh, a city that today is, uh, the numbers are just incredible insofar as how many Latinos serve here, I'm sorry, live here. And, uh, and, and we have families that are just trying to make it just like I was when we came to this wonderful city. Mm. And I know that uh, along the way you uh, uh, were one of the co-founders of the National Association of Latina Leaders wanting to uh, <laughs> inspire others to, uh, to uh, accomplish uh, some of the same sorts of things that, that you have. I want to be sure that we have a, t- uh, a chance to hear a little bit about what one does when one is the treasurer of the United States. Uh, you are the fir- 41st person uh, to, uh, to serve our country in, in that uh, particular uh, capacity, and I'm pretty sure one of the first, uh, maybe the first, uh, to serve who was not born here in the United States, but born elsewhere and, and eventually came here. Um, explain what your most significant duties were as treasurer of the United States. Yes. So, yes, I was the 14th woman, the fourth Latina, but the first immigrant mm. woman to be treasurer of the United States. Mm. So I, this has been an amazing, amazing honor. And before I go into what the treasurer does, I didn't even know when, when, I, was, when I got the call from presidential personnel to the, the lady says, uh, Mrs. Marine, uh, uh, the president would like to know if you would be willing to be considered 
for the position of treasurer of the United States, my mouth, you know, hit the floor. I was like, wow, what? <laughs> like, I didn't even know what the treasurer of the United States uh, does or, or did. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my goodness. Oh, I, I knew that her name was on the money. That I did know. That I did know. <laughs> but what she did, I had no idea. Uh, anyways, it was, it was a huge honor. Uh, and and I, I often talk about the fact that when the president selected me to be treasurer of the United States, I, I don't think it, it, it said so much about me as it said about him, mm. and more importantly, as it said what, about our country. It, it, this is the country where a girl who couldn't speak English stamped her name in its currency. That only happens in the greatest country in the world. <laughs> and so I, it, 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 it doesn't say so much about me, Greg, as it says about the beauty, the generosity of our country. Hmm. And I am so profoundly grateful that he chose me. But I also don't think that it was for me, but it was through me. And the honor was not for me, but it was through me. He honors the people that I represent. And who do I represent? I represent women. I represent Mexicans. I represent elected officials. I represent mothers of children with disabilities. That's who I am. I represent immigrants. I, the honor is for all of them, and it's not for me. And I never kept it, and I never thought that it's because of me and blah, blah, blah. No, <laughs> it was not for me. It's through me. <laughs> and so what does the treasurer of the United States do besides signing the, the currency? Because it's not just the dollar. It's the $2 and the $5 and the $10 and the 20th and 50s and the $100 bill. Your name is stamped in every single one of them. Um, so by law, <clears throat> excuse me, by law, uh, what the, the duties are of the Treasurer of the United States is that to produce and protect the money of the United States. Uh, the U.S. savings bonds, I was in charge, uh, and please don't ask me exactly how many billions and trillions of dollars <laughs> that we have in all of that, because I forgot all of that. <laughs> this is a long time ago. This is 20 years ago. But um, it, it's just a, a great honor. Uh, aside from that, because I am the treasurer of the United States, I am in the executive uh, uh, committee of the Treasury Department, um, I am one of the uh, committee, if you will, that goes around and explains and seeks support for the president's economic financial policies. So our task, and as, as you know, I was a treasurer of the United States in 2001, right immediately after um, 9-11, the president uh, had a tremendous task to revive the economy. As you know, we mm. lost $1 trillion of our economy in, in that day, literally that day. Um, 
And so we had to revamp the economy. So I was part of the group that went around the entire country uh, trying to get the support for the president's economic uh, policies. And that was as part of my duties as treasurer of the United States to sell the president's economic plans um, across the United States and seek the support uh, of of the people. Um, In addition, because I was born in Mexico, my duties became, as one of the ambassadors said it much clearly than, than I could ever, he says, Rosario, we have the ambassador of the United States to Mexico, and then we have the Mexican ambassador to the United States, and then we have Rosario, the ambassador. <laughs> mm. I was, I tried, I, I, I visited Mexico uh, nine different times, uh, same thing, advancing the economic well-being of both, both countries. And it was so important to me, as a matter of fact, one of the fondest memories that I have of my tenure as treasurer of the United States was being on Air Force One with both President Fox and President Bush at the same time. Wow. I I tell you, Greg, I could not sleep the night before. (laughs) I was so honored, so privileged. I, I couldn't believe that I was going to be flying with the two presidents of the nations that I love. Mm. Um, it was really uh, uh, an inspiring moment for me. Um, so my 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 position uh, enabled me to advance um, the economic uh, well-being of both countries. Mm. In addition, uh, yeah, go ahead. No, that's please continue. Uh-huh. So, um, in addition. Um, because I was treasurer of the United States, one of the, my tasks was, um, and I took this wholeheartedly, um, we had at that time about 10 million unbanked Americans. And it, it was coming, you know, having come from the banking world, uh, I understood how important financial literacy was. And so uh, in talking to uh, then-Secretary of the Treasury, Paul O'Neill, we decided that I would be, that that would be part of my portfolio. So when I went around the country, I oftentimes uh, talked about the importance of uh, financial literacy and how we needed to, and and we did, and we actually created uh, uh, programs that the Department of Education would actually embed uh, in the curriculum, um, items that that were literally financial uh, education. So um, we worked, uh, and I worked with a number of organizations trying to get more and more uh, people educated about finances. Uh, we obviously have many, many challenges, uh, especially, and many of our college students would understand this, uh, as soon as they turn 18, they get bombarded with credit cards. Mm. Nobody tells them that they actually have to pay for it. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> what do you mean I have to pay for it? Well, I get another credit card to pay the other credit card. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. Um, understand, we need to, we really, really need to understand how our financial system works. So we know the rules, we play by them, and we do have an incredible system that if you know how to use it, is going to make you financially independent, and that's what we want. But you cannot be financially independent if you don't know how the system works. Mm. So that was my, that was my, and to this day, I still serve on, on, on um, organizations that promote financial literacy, and I want to do even more so. That's very valuable work for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Those were some of the things that I did. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. So you come to Carthage uh, for a couple of days this week uh, at the invitation of the Business and Professional Coalition and and speak to the public actually on Wednesday, the 23rd of February uh, at 6 p.m. Briefly, uh, what is the topic that you are going to be addressing on Wednesday? Right. We well, the, certainly we're going to be talking a little bit about what what we talked about with you, but the idea is to for students to and for people to understand uh, what are the, what what's the situation right now. What have we learned from NAFTA? You know, NAFTA was uh, re um, uh, re not redone, but it was um, improved, if you will. Um, recently, and uh, how is the relationship? What's the bilateral situation and actually the trilateral? Because NAFTA, as you very well know, includes Canada, the United States, and Mexico. Talk a little bit about that. Where are we in the situation? Uh, There are a number of challenges. And while we will talk about the challenges, I really, really want to talk about the opportunities. Mm. You know, unless we oftentimes, and it is important, it is very important to understand what the challenges are. But we cannot just focus on the problems. We need to focus on the solutions. And one of the most important things, uh, and I have traveled to Canada, and I have traveled to Mexico. Actually, I have traveled all Central America, uh, a couple of uh, countries in the Caribbean, uh, Panama, Brazil, uh, Peru. uh, I'm actually going to Colombia in a couple of weeks. Um, We can focus on all the problems, and all these countries have major problems, political, social, democracies that are no longer democracies. Uh, this, this is a challenge for the United States. But the most important thing, Greg, and this is one of the things that I, I, I love to, to talk about, because what I look at are the possibilities. What I look at are the solutions. And who has the solutions? People do. Mm. People entrepreneurs this is our best resources are the people that are willing to take on these challenges Uh, these people that are owners of small businesses people that lead multinational corporations people that every day they get up to provide for their families to provide for their companies I look at them, I see them, and they understand that the environment may not be so great, and yet they look for that opening so they can go out there and provide their goods and services, their products and services. And 
I am always energized by the goodwill, by the entrepreneurial spirit, by the desire to continue to grow. And at the end of the day, that's what we are called for. Mm. You know, we are called for to find the solutions. And we have the solutions, Greg. So, yes, we will talk about the challenges, but we will also talk about the opportunities, the possibilities, um, because we have the wherewithal. There is no problem for which we cannot find the solution. You know, I, that's my take. And, and having been uh, in many countries, having looked at uh, and studied uh, the economies of, of, of these countries, you know, we, we can do it. We can. Uh, when I meet with um, uh, business people from around uh, the world, I see that the solution is in them. Hmm. Uh, you know, governments, it is not the government's job, and I say this everywhere I go, to create wealth for their people. That, that's not their job. That is not the job of the United States government. The job of governments is to create the environment that promotes businesses, that creates jobs. It's to create that environment. And when we do, Greg, we will find the solutions. Mm. Oftentimes, it is private industry that leads government. It's not the other way around. And so I am always hopeful. I am always... Um, uh, I, I see the bright, I'm, I'm not a Pollyannish person. I am not. I'm not a Pollyanna. But I do look at all the strengths that our economy has. I look at the strengths that our financial institutions provide. I look at the strengths of current law that, that, that enables uh, that environment, that creates that environment. So we have the tools we had the willingness, and um, I know some people want to look at the downside and and the problems. And it's like, no, no, no. Let, let's look at let's look at what it is, what's possible. And there are many, many things um, that that are possible. And, and even looking at what we just went through, the pandemic. You know, this was worldwide. We had many, many, many challenges. And look where we are, Greg. We are now, we still have some challenges, but we're, we saw it through. We're seeing it through right now. Hmm. And we, as usual, we will come up on top. So um, I, I look back and I knew we have the wherewithal. We have the ingenuity, we have the desire, we have the strength, we have the stamina. We'll be okay. Mm. I am very hopeful. Very well said. And of course, uh, the resiliency of our nation is also reflected in the resiliency that uh, you have demonstrated uh, in your 
uh, life, your eventful and colorful life. And uh, again, you are coming to Carthage College of Rosario Marin at the invitation of Carthage's Business and Professional Coalition uh, for a couple of days, but speaking uh, to the public on Wednesday, February 23rd at 6 p.m. in the Todd Weir Center. And uh, this event is free, but you do need to register in order to attend. And uh, I direct you to the Carthage website, carthage.edu, to the bridge where you will find information about Rosario Marin's visit, and there will be a link where you can register, again, free of charge, uh, to attend uh, her presentation on this Wednesday, the February, uh, the 23rd of February. Rosario Marin, it has been a great pleasure and honor for me to speak with you, to learn more about you and about your life. I thank you so much. I uh, wish you safe travels and uh, wish you well with all the other good work that you continue to do. Thank you for being part of the morning show today. Thank you, Greg. We'll see you soon.